Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. Today we're joined by Rhett Kessler, the Senior Fund Manager of Pangana's Australian Equity Fund, a fund that I've been using for my clients and myself for over the last nine years. And since inception, that fund has returned investors with a net return above 11% compound annual growth net of fees. During that time, I found Rhett's approach to investing to be amongst the best in the market and his ability to articulate it as being exceptionally good. With that excitement, I introduce Rhett Kessler. Hi Rhett, welcome to Inside the Rope and thanks for joining us. Thanks, it's nice to be here. Rhett, if you could start off by maybe giving us a bit of a background of your working career and investment career and how that influences how you approach investment. Okay. Um... I guess the most influential is my formal training as a chartered accountant and then several years of auditing as an articled clerk where you really have to go in and see it from the other side, how the actual accounts are constructed and with the risk being that the client or the corporate at that time was trying to either inflate if they were listed or deflate if they were paying tax as an unlisted entity. And so you always had to work out what the angle was and then work out where the gaps and the tricks and traps were. It was a phenomenal period because every single company would uh, allow you in and I was able to approach them and ask them about how they made money, how they lost money, what they're worried about. Hence my book of tricks and traps which I've built up over the years. Um, I was also very fortunate to work for uh, one of the bigger uh, life insurance companies in the asset management department in South Africa. And they had an interesting approach in that, first of all, asset bubbles got created. Um, asset bubbles got created uh, as a result of a focus on one asset class to the exclusion of all others. So, for instance, if you've got a property manager and he's got inflows and he doesn't have to look at any other asset class, you see all, you see real um, real breakaways from what true value is, because all this weight of money pushes up prices in one asset class without any regard to the fact you could get much better elsewhere. Um, So we used to manage all asset classes within one fund. Hence in my fund I have the ability or the mandate to be able to buy um, anything listed on the Australian Stock Exchange um, and to have cash as something to hang your hat on as to what do you get from cash on a risk return basis versus everything else you're investing in. Um, Secondly also it's very easy to end up in an ivory tower. So if you're a fund manager and you're working in percentages and you're sitting five million miles above the actual economy in your ivory tower, it's very easily, you're very easily disassociated from the real world. And so the view then in my training was that you had to be both an analyst and a fund manager. And that set me up really well. So we have the same philosophy here. Every person in my team is both a fund manager making decisions and at the same time actually analyzing it. And it always makes for an interesting conversation when you wear one hat as a fund manager and then you take it off and then you present a stock to the other guys and they give you as good as you gave them on the various stocks. What are some of the key things that you look for when an investment first presents itself or you're looking? What are the key things that you're looking for and trying to identify? Okay, so I guess the easiest one is um, 
We're looking for something that is understandable, but not easily understandable. That's a really useful filter. And we're saying when it's, when it's, it's non-trivial, but not so complex that no one can understand it. So I guess a great, a great example would be when you look at health insurance, um, where you have a risk equalization fund in Australia, mm-hmm. which takes away a lot of the complications, but insurance is still complex, it's still non-trivial. Vis-a-vis a QBE, where you have global underwriting risk in very many different areas. So the first one is, can we understand it? And is it complex enough to keep the masses away? So we think we can have a com- uh, competitive edge. When you look back after you've made an investment, how do you think about performance and measure performance? We think about two things. First of all, have we made money? Both, and we're pretty agnostic as to whether it's capital growth or income. That's the first thing. And the second thing we think about is what volatility and what risk did we have? But if I back up one section, before we make any investment, we have an investment thesis. We formulate an investment thesis that tells us um, how we're going to make money and how we're going to preserve capital. So it addresses both of those issues. And secondly, most importantly, we find it has to have investment milestones against which we can test our investment thesis. And those investment milestones have to be ahead of the game. And by that I mean we can't wait until they actually publish their results and everybody gets it at the same time. And I can give you some examples there if you'd like. Yeah, please do. So um, take for example, I can talk about it freely now because it's no longer easily to invest in it, but we had a sizable investment in TATS Group. TATS Group, the main investment thesis was that uh, their lottery revenue and profitability would grow at GDP plus at the revenue line and that would translate into operating leverage so you'd get a nice double digit earnings growth. So what we thought was we really, we have to work out what their revenue is like ahead of the game. And um, one of my staff worked out a very clever web spider that crawled over the lottery pages or the prize, lottery prizes page that TATS would publish every week. Mm-hmm. And we could back solve for their turnover out of the prizes because the prizes were a function of turnover. And so by the end of a period, we had, we had already tracked what they were like vis-a-vis the previous year. We could see whether there was growth. We could see whether it was jackpot driven, which was, had a big uh, impact on, um, on profit, underlying profitability. And so we knew ahead of the game, which was very legal, but you know, one step ahead means of working out what was happening in the underlying business and consistently testing our investment thesis. And that's the kind of thing we have to do. Uh, Waiting until you read it in the newspaper is way too late. I read the newspapers not to look for investment ideas, but rather to see what is it it that I didn't know that I now know, unfortunately, or what is it that I've already known that now becoming public knowledge. That's why I read the newspapers. Rhett, how do you think about performance? Do you think about relative return or absolute return? And, and you know, describe how you think about that. Yeah, so first and foremost, I should say up front, is we're absolute return focused. In an environment where most people are judged on a relative return basis. Relative returns are great 
when the market's going up, everyone wants to do better than the market. But when the market's going down, nobody wants to do better than the market in that, you know, only lost 20% of your money, but don't worry, the market lost 25%. It's very hard to pay school fees, as I always say, out of relative returns when relative returns are negative. So how do we think about it? For us, we think that investors really need, in order to gain financial independence, is they need their capital preserved in real Australian dollars because their future expenditure will be predominantly real Australian dollars. And secondly, they need at least enough return to adjust for the risk they take on. Mm. So our definition of that is whatever you can get in the bank risk-free, plus at least another 6% drive away no more to pay, and I'll come back to that. So risk-free rate that what you can get in the bank plus 6% drive away no more to pay if you're going to invest in risk assets. So that's a target currently, which is about 8%. And we think in an environment with low inflation, because the risk-free rate is a proxy for inflation, mm-hmm. 6% above that will get us there. And if we can do that year in, year out like we have, while simultaneously preserving capital in every single year, we think uh, investors can sleep at night and they can emerge from that investment journey a lot better off. So that's the performance side. How do you think about risk and how do you manage risk when you're looking at a portfolio of investments? That's, that's the million dollar question. Uh, risk management has been um, corporatized or should I say institutionalized in a lot of places where there's been an overriding confusion in my opinion of tracking error for investment risk. So let me back up. For me, the underlying investment risk that I have to manage in my portfolio is how do I make sure I don't lose money and how do I make sure I get at least enough return for the risk I'm taking on. Those are my investment risks. Tracking error can be a proxy for that, but we believe it's a very poor proxy because tracking error is how you go against the market. So if I have 10% of my money in BHP because it's 10% of the market, I will have no tracking error. But let's face it, having 10% of your money in a commodity-based global cyclical business where no one can predict the oil price or the iron ore price is a poor way to manage capital preservation risk. So for us, we're always thinking about, can I preserve my capital by holding that stock? So do I know? And if I don't know, we don't play. And that's our overriding um, proviso, is safety first. Brett, can you talk a little bit about your process um, and maybe cite you know, one of the great examples you have of a phenomenal investment and how that process has led to a, a great decision and then maybe contrast that with uh, one of the few that hasn't worked out as well and, and how the process in that may have been the same or different. Yeah. So... Um, We have a very easy process. Um, First of all, we like enormous idea flow. So whenever someone brings us an idea, we listen. And we like to be in a position where we can say no at least 10 times a day and maybe say yes once a month. So whoever looks under the most rocks wins, we think, in our business. But our process of what we do with the information is A, we're looking for something that we can understand. And by that I mean for every dollar we put into it, what are we actually buying? Secondly, we're looking for something that we can predict with reasonable certainty, and that tends to mean we, we, we tend to um, 
have more toilet paper and toothpaste type businesses in our in our portfolio and then thirdly we look for what we call a good business a good business for us is basically something or a business which has an aggregation of power over its stakeholders so in most interactions it will be able to flex its power and come out with something that protects our capital and gives us a fair return once we've found those we then need to make sure that the management in charge of stewarding that business is competent and honest and we think we're pretty good at that we think we well, we have like a, an FBI dossier on each management team <laughs> and we're quite sophisticated in the way we analyze management and then thirdly we have to make sure that we can actually make money out of it it's useless finding the best business run by the most competent management but you're the last person to discover it so it's ridiculously priced so a great example be realestate.com or even Domino's where we'd love to own them but at the price that the market's asking for it we don't see how we can make money out of it so this process for us has really um, been consistently good in, in, in allowing us to make very worthwhile investments. Probably the best investment we've made has been uh, NIB, where we look at an insurance business and we say it's fascinating for us because every insurance business is actually three businesses. The first one is the underwriting business, which everyone thinks is the business, but for us it's only one of three. So hopefully the business pays out less in claims than it collects in premiums. And NRB does that beautifully. Secondly though, they get a lot of people's money in before they pay it out. And that's a very valuable float of business, uh, of funds, which we as an investor would benefit from all the interest or investment income from that float. The third one is probably least well understood, and that is that every insurance company is required by the regulator to hold a sizable amount of capital in the business for in case. It's not like a normal business where you need to invest in plant and equipment and goods and uh, sorry, and stock and debtors. It actually just sits there on the side hanging off the business. And you can actually generate enormous amounts of investment income out of that third business. So in NRB's case, we knew that for every dollar we put in, what we were getting, and we discovered that it had so much surplus capital when it was first listed, $3 worth, and it was listed at a dollar, that we actually tried to buy the whole business. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough money in the fund to do that, although we tried hard. Um, management we thought were very good, and obviously the pricing was just too attractive. So we pursued that business with vigor. We established a really good rapport with the board and with management, and we had almost our maximum possible investment in that. Um, it listed at a dollar, it's currently $5.70, and it's actually paid out a lot of that capital to us as shareholders. So it's been an enormous, enormous um, gain for us. Now, on the flip side, we've made some bad mistakes. Fortunately, we've kept those down to a minimum. Mm -hmm. So probably the worst mistake uh, we've made in recent history has been our investment in Spotless, where although we thought it was a reasonable business, we underestimated management's ability to um, not convey how much um, spruiking or setup the business had done in order to be listed. So there was a lot of profitable uh, contracts that had been front-end loaded and we didn't realize how, many, how much of that had dissipated. And we got caught out. Uh, we managed to extract ourselves with a minimal, well we made a loss 
reasonable loss, but it could have been a lot worse and we managed to get out okay. Rhett, can you talk to me a little bit about um, the investment mandate? You know, lots of people investing now are outsourcing the investment decisions to someone like yourself. Um, And I've often heard you talk about alignment and interest of otherwise. Um, Is that an important thing, do you think, for investors to consider? Absolutely. Um, I think that, that finding a mandate that best aligns the decision maker's purpose with your own is the best way to ensure that um, you've got a good chance of preserving capital and making money. So when I thought about it, uh, starting this business, we thought about inviting people to join us on the journey towards financial independence. So very simply put, I invest to either maintain or create my own financial independence. And the best way to align yourself with your co-investors, as we call our clients, is to hold exactly the same units as they, as they do, to restrict yourself so that the investment manager does not invest in listed equities outside of the fund. So in that proverbial bacon and egg sandwich is the pig, not the chicken. Um, thirdly, a well-enunciated mandate that explains exactly what we're trying to achieve, preserve capital and make money. Thirdly, a performance fee in the fund and having the decision makers own money in the fund, which means that we are not incentivized to be an asset gatherer. Mm -hmm. So if I just divert, if you invest with someone who doesn't have his own money in the fund and only has a management fee, the only way he can make more money next year is to have more fun. I've got my own money in the fund. We have a performance fee. I would be the proverbial schmuck if I let the fund get too big so that I diluted my own performance for my own money and my performance fee. So we thought we think we've set up the business so that our vested interests are the same as our co-investors, our clients. And that synonymous um, intention is, is, is being brought out over the last nine years. So we will never do anything so that we can tick some boxes for the rating agencies if it doesn't make commercially pragmatic sense for us and our co-investors. So that alignment of interest is really paramount from the start. Yep. If I'm trying to beat the market and I'm worried, and a great example, sorry, is if I'm trying to beat the market and I'm worried about the market, um, I will find things to hide in that may go down, but they'll go down less than the market. Now, if that's not what you want as an absolute return investor, why give someone that mandate? So I often laugh because I walk around and I bump into my peer group and in dark and dreary times, like happened recently, I bumped into a a member of uh, the investment community who said to me, Red, how are you guys going? And I said, geez, I feel terrible. He says, why is that? I said, geez, you know, we're down 2%. I said, how are you doing? He says, no, we're up, amazingly, we're up 3%. Um, and I said to him, well, that's, just, that's phenomenal. What have you got? Because the market's down 7 um, and I'm down 2 so I feel terrible because I'm trying to not lose any money. He says, no, no, we're, we're down 4 <laughs> but in, in real terms it means that we're up 3 because we're outperforming the market by, by 3 So if you're, if you're invested with that guy, that's what you should expect. He's trying to beat the market. If you invest with us, you know, we feel terrible about every dollar we lose. I, I laugh about that, but that's a real conversation that happens time and time again in the market, correct? Yep. 
Yeah, look, there's a Rhett, there's a lot of discussion in the market about active versus passive, and the the growth of ETFs has been huge. I, I suspect I know your answer where you sit, but can you give us some thoughts or comments around active management versus passive management? Yeah, I think there should be an important distinction: is that if you're a relative manager, trying to beat the market is really, really hard, particularly with the mandates that you get given. Let's think about the mandates that the vast majority of people who are relative managers have out there. They have a mandate that does that requires them to be 95% invested at all times. So every day they come in, let's just think about their day. They come in and they say, what do we think about the banks? It's 30% of the market. If we like the banks, we may have 32. If we don't like the banks, we may have 28. And as they go through every sector, by the time they've added it all up, they've allocated 90% of their money or 80 to 90% of their money before they make any out-the-box decisions. Counter, uh, sorry, or, or, uh, compare that to a absolute return fund manager like ourselves. We come in, come in every day with a blank piece of paper and we have to allocate 100% of our money. So are there any new great deals out there? Yes, we'll allocate money. If they aren't, we'll stay in cash. And then also, what did we allocate yesterday? So the, the day-to-day occurrences are totally different. Secondly, and I must say most importantly, is if you're not a great relative manager, then obviously ETFs make a lot of sense, or index funds, because you're not paying the costs and you're getting what the market does without the risk of underperforming and outperforming. I must say though, then you have to be absolutely certain that what the market does is what you want because you've got to realize that the market is, is a reflection of last year's and previous year's successes because it is weighted to size and size is a reflection of previous year's successes. I like the fact that a lot of money is going to passive in ETFs because the herd's getting bigger. And if the herd gets bigger, it means that if you're nimble and you're focused, and believe me, that's hard, it's not easy, but if you keep working and you get reasonably good at it, the gaps become bigger, the, 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 the opportunities become bigger. Rhett, um, what do you see as the biggest mistakes or the most common mistakes that investors make? Yeah, the, biggest, the biggest mistake, um, and it depends what kind of investors you talk about. If I talk about my co-investors and I think the investing public out there, I think the biggest mistake is um, being momentum players. And, and, and everybody's, you know, myself included, has a temptation to follow that. So in other words, when everything's going up, everyone feels a lot happier and you can feel your checkbook opening. And conversely, when things look terrible, and everything's falling, you can feel your checkbook closing. But in actual fact, the real opportunities, or, or we found that um, the best money we've ever made is to hold your discipline when things go up. Because if you can't preserve capital and make money out of buying at that price, then we don't and we stay in cash. And believe me, we get very grumpy. Because although we're quite sanguine about the outlook, we can't find things to buy and everything's going up. And we say, well, what are we missing? but we stick to our discipline. Conversely, we've also demonstrated that your best money is made with what we call the ability to reach across the abyss and buy things when there's blood on the streets 
that's when you make your best money. And, and I must say that every time, my only consolation when I feel like throwing up because I've bought something and I have to walk around my desk several times to settle myself and then sit down and buy the same thing 5% cheaper, that's when I do my best buying. But jeez, it's hard. And I know this is a podcast and you can't see my, uh, my hairline, but I don't have one because that's the hardest thing. Um, it's that ability to have the strength of your conviction. My dad always used to say that, you know, if you, if you buy something, you don't really know why you're there and you're only buying it because you think it's going to go up because it's gone up for the last few weeks. What do you do when it goes down? You'll usually end up getting shaken out at the worst possible time if you don't understand exactly why you buy things. Um, and why are you there? So that's why investment thesis with our milestones is considered so fundamental to what we do every day. Terrific, Rhett. Um, in winding up, um, you know, if you have to give the kids a couple of great pieces of investment advice, what would they specifically be? Um, I mean, that's a really interesting question. So there's a lot of standard things. You know, make sure that that you don't follow the wrong crowd, that you're not a momentum buyer. I have two new philosophies that I've developed over the years. And the one is that I've decided that I will invest alongside the right people. So if if you want to, my dad always used to say, if you want to get hit by a truck, make sure you stand in the middle of a busy highway, not in some dead end. So if you want to find great investments, make sure you mingle or align yourself with the right people because they will help guide you and sharpen your brain. The second thing I guess is that a very strong work ethic, it's what I call don't ever adopt the half job approach where you know half, half is good enough or shortcuts good enough because the, the real value is always found in the detail. And whereas it may seem like really hard work but going that extra mile means that you go further than others so you'll find better value. So if I teach my kids how to play chess, the best thing I tell them is, first thing you have to work out is how many steps your opponent's thinking, and then you have to think one more step. And so adopting a thorough approach and going that extra mile in the analysis will always put you, hopefully, one step ahead of what's already priced in the market. And then I guess the the last thing would be that just always realize that you don't know everything. So when I try to explain to my uh, staff the environment we find ourselves in, I often find myself referring to a lift or an elevator with mirrors on every side. And if you've ever stood in one of those, you'll know that you can see forever in every direction. And as close as you get to one side, you can never actually touch it. And that's where we are. Everything's just different shades of gray. Put yourself as close to the best opportunity as possible, but always bear in mind that you're not completely there because something will always come out of left field uh, to catch you. Rick Kessler, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with Inside the Rope. Have a great day. Thanks, good to be here. You have been listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the monthly podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management.